Well, good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Good to be with you this morning as we transition to talking about simplicity. For the month of November, we're going to talk about simplicity. And last summer, well, the beginning of last summer in May, I was, I was sitting in a hermitage as my sabbatical started. I was exhausted and excited. I was exhausted because, well, life is exhausting, right? And pastoring through 2020 was exhausting. Living in 2020 was exhausting, right? Amen? Can I get an amen on that? Okay, thank you. I was exhausted but excited. I was exhausted because of all the things, and I was excited because I had three months gifted to me from this church to just fight against pastoral exhaustion, to just sit and be with Jesus. And so I sat there and I cracked open this book titled Invitation to Retreat by Ruth Haley Barton. And the whole book rocked me. But there was a particular paragraph in the beginning that helped send me on a journey of pursuing greater intimacy with God, self, and others. Ruth Haley Barton writes, We are experiencing information overload. There is no end to the amount of information available to us. But there is a limit to how much time and energy we can expend on taking in and processing it. Our minds are exhausted from trying to gather and make sense of all the information coming at us. And our hearts are exhausted from the emotion that is stirred up by the complexity and the heartbreak of what is going on in our world. At some point, we simply have to take a break from it all. We have to recognize this information overload as a source of our exhaustion and take a rest from it. I sat there and I felt this information exhaustion completely. In the margin next to this paragraph in this book, I wrote, 2020 broke me. And we all felt it, didn't we? the complexity of the information and the misinformation that was coming at us then, but not just then, now also. My my family and I have been watching the World Series, which ended last night, so I'm going to go into a deep, dark depression for the next four months until baseball starts again. But as we're watching the World Series, back-to-back commercials, Angie Craig, terrible. Angie Craig, amazing. Tyler Kistner, terrible. Tyler Kistner, amazing. They did this. They didn't do that. They did, didn't do this. They did that. And my kids are like, Dad, are they good or bad? I was like, I have no idea. Politics, bad, all of it. All of this information coming at my children, and they have no clue what to do with it. And honestly, neither do I. There's, there's information being thrown at us all the time and a ton of misinformation. And then the amount of opinions and perspectives that we have to navigate is downright overwhelming. In our our panel a couple months ago on intimacy where myself and Linda Gunderson and John Ness sat up here on the stage and talked a little bit about intimacy with God, John shared from an article titled The Information Tsunami. He shared about the absurd rate at which information doubles in our world. And this is, a, this is a little graph that can predict that. They, they say that actually for the first 1,500 years post-Christ, information, it took 1,500 years for information to double. And they use the word knowledge in this graph. I wish it was information because knowledge implies actually knowing something. We, I, I think it's a tsunami information, not a knowledge information. And then you can see how quickly information has been doubling. And I don't even know what that means, that information doubles. I think it means that, that, it, is, that it is put out there and it's accessible to us. So living in your right front or left pocket or in your purse is all of the information you could ever want. And it's doubling every 11 to 12 hours. And the human brain cannot handle that. 
we're exhausted. In, in this book, Invitation to Retreat, Ruth Haley Barton quotes Thomas Merton, who said, some of us need to discover that we will not begin to live more fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience much less than usual. There are times when in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And for the person who has been drawn completely out of themselves by activity, Nothing is more difficult than to sit still and rest. Nothing at all. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act they can perform. It was in this place of learning to sit and rest in God that I began to hear his voice very clearly to me. Saying, Andrew, I I want you to pursue greater intimacy with me, greater authenticity in your walk in the world and simplicity. And so I spent months working that through, praying that through, exercising that, practicing that, and and asking God, is this also something that you want for our church community? And he clearly told me, yes, you're hungry for this. And so today we're transitioning to the idea of simplicity. And what I want to do this month is simply look at different passages, and I want to see simplicity in the scripture. We're going to look at different passages that show us simplicity in the scripture and teach us what Christian simplicity looks like, and then apply it to our lives. So we're going to go through different texts, we're going to make some scripture observations, and then some scriptural applications, and that's where we're going this morning. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. And so there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have one with you, please grab that Bible, open it up to page 591. If you have a phone and you use the Bible app, go ahead and open that up. Just be careful about all the other apps with all the other information. Now, I'm not a legalist. I'm not going to tell you to not use a Bible app. In fact, it's very good, but oftentimes I'm going to encourage you, get a paper Bible because it's a way to look at God's Word without all the distraction of it. Another email, another text message, another Snapchat, another Facebook notice, another Twitter notice, another Instagram notice. Also playing with your mind as you're trying to spend time with God, right? So, whatever form, and again, I'm I'm not trying to be legalistic about that. Just read the Bible. But every now and then, I encourage you to grab a paper Bible. And so let's look at Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. In context here, God is speaking to his people through the prophet Isaiah. His people are are rebelling against him, and he's calling them back to himself. God is trying to woo his people back to himself. Verse 15, he says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. This call here is reminding us that our strength doesn't come from knowledge. It doesn't come from information. It doesn't come from forming alliances or having strong armies or the right political leaders or raising our voices and demanding that our cause be heard and executed. What does it come from? Our strength comes from quietness and trust. This seems pretty simple, doesn't it? A a, a slowing down, a, a simplicity of the soul. God says himself to his people who are in exile. And I got news for you. We're in exile. America is not the new Israel. It is Babylon. We are in exile. The people of God spread around the world. We're all in exile waiting for the day when when he would gather us in from the north and the south, from the east and the west, all tribes, tongues, nations, languages to himself. We are in exile. And in exile, God is calling us just like he called the people of God in the Old Testament who are in exile in returning. That means repentance, return to the Lord, return to simplicity of faith, 
Return to your Father. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. And I love the last part of this verse. But you are unwilling. You are unwilling. And so the question for us this morning, are you willing? Are you willing to return to the Lord? To rest in Him? To stop striving? To stop raising your voice? To stop demanding your way? To stop cluttering your life with information and misinformation and thinking that somehow the right information and the right application of the right information is going to save you? Are you willing to, in quietness and trust, give your soul to God? That's the invitation this morning from God in Isaiah. And I want to look at some other passages here. I want to flip now over to the New Testament. We're going to go to Mark chapter 6, and we're going to see how Jesus now takes this invitation from God to find him, to find our intimacy, our authenticity, and our simplicity in God. And Jesus is going to give us the same call, the same invitation. Look at Mark chapter 6, 30 through 32. Now, in context here, Mark chapter 6, the disciples have just gone out two by two. Uh, look, look, at it, look at verse 12 with me so you get some context of chapter 6. Mark, 12, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This is the disciples being sent out by Jesus two by two. And they cast out many demons and anointed them with oils, many who were sick, and healed them. And then there's this, there's this part about John the Baptist being beheaded in here, and we're not going to read that, but jump to verse 30. So these disciples have all gone out two by two. They're, they're, they're doing miraculous things, healing people, casting out demons. Verse 30, and the disciples returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. We just did amazing, miraculous things for you, Jesus, in your name, for the kingdom of God. And here's how he responds, verse 31, and he said to them, Come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure time even to eat. The busyness of effective ministry. There was effective ministry happening, and the disciples are amped up on effective ministry, right? When you're a part of a movement, when you're a part of God's hand, it's, it, it's exhilarating. We saw demons cast out. We saw sick people healed. They come to Jesus. They report it to him. And he doesn't pat them on the back for their kingdom activity, though he is proud of them. He filled them up. This is their mission, their purpose. He's called us to be and make disciples of all nations, and the disciples here are going out to do that. But Jesus' response here is to say, in the busyness of ministry, in the busyness of activity, in the busyness of life, in the busyness specifically of pouring yourself out for me, the invitation is to come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest. Whenever we see desolate place in the New Testament, it's, it, it's a solitary place. It's a place removed from the city, removed from the noise, removed from the chaos. It's in the desert. This is where Jesus went to fast for 40 days before his earthly ministry began. This is where Jesus would often, periodically, pull away from the crowd, from the noise, from the, from the demands to be with God. This is intimacy with God. He's actually telling the disciples that in the midst of this ministry activity, in the midst of your kingdom effectiveness, you need kingdom rest. You need to pull away in simplicity. You need, you need to say goodbye to the complexity of the world and the demands of following Jesus, and you need to simplify your life. You need to rest, and you need to grow in intimacy with God your Father. Come away 
and rest. It's Jesus' response to his disciples. And so our, my question for us this morning, have you found a desolate place to get away from the noise so that you can rest in God? Last summer when I was on sabbatical, I was out in Colorado at a, uh, at a pastoral retreat in the Garden of the Gods in, in Colorado Springs, and it was a beautiful setting. And the person leading the seminar said, he, he was talking about Jesus pulling away to rest, and Jesus' desolate place was like the desert and the mountains, and he just said, maybe you need some mountain time. Which for me, I, I love the mountains, and it justified me pulling away and going to the mountains. For you, maybe it's a river, maybe it's a lake, maybe it's a stream, maybe it's a coffee shop, maybe, maybe it's a quiet corner in your home. Maybe it's your backyard, maybe it's your front yard, maybe it's somebody else's backyard. Maybe your neighbor has a better backyard. When they're gone, you just sneak over into their backyard and sit there. That could be your desolate place. You don't have to worry about the chores, right? Your backyard, full of leaves. My neighbor's backyard, two down. He cleans all of his leaves. He has a great yard. I'm sneak over there. That could be my desolate place. Whatever it is, have you found a desolate place? And this has less to do with the, with the place. And now place is important. Really, I, I think you should think through where, where do I connect with God? Where do I actually slow down? Where can I find intimacy with God and, and simplicity in life? So place is important, but it's less about place, and it's more about just the act of intentionally being with God, removing yourself from the noise, from the clutter, from the chaos, so that you could rest in God. One more passage, um, looking at Jesus as an example here, look to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verses 42 through 44. Very similar to what we just looked at. Says, and when it was the day, he departed and went into, what's it say? And when it was day, he departed and went into. Great, amen. One one person got there quickly and said desolate place earlier on. I had to give you a little bit more time. He went into a desolate place, right? Jesus is modeling for us how we ought to live. When we gather, we talk about Jesus being our substitute. He lived the perfect life, the life that we're incapable of living and died a sacrificial death, overcame sin and death in the grave. That's why we take communion every week to remember what Jesus did that you and I cannot do, and it's in his life, death, and resurrection that we are saved. However, Jesus is also our example. And so we're never going to be able to, in our flesh, in this life, perfectly do what Jesus did, but we ought to strive to live our lives like Jesus, our perfect example. And he's giving us an example here. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, as I was sent for this purpose. And while he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so in this setting, I love this passage. Jesus here is doing this preaching ministry, and there's this growing, there's this growing attraction to Jesus and to his preaching. The disciples are doing healings and casting out demons, and Jesus is doing healings and casting out demons, and, and his teaching and his preaching is attracting a large crowd. And in this busyness, he pulls away to spend time with God. See, simplicity is contingent on intimacy. He's, he's developing intimacy with God. He's spending time with God the Father, intentionally getting away from the chaos, the noise, the demands. 
And, 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 I, and there's something here that we need to learn about simplicity as well. So intimacy is, is extremely important if we're going to get to simplicity. There, there's a reason why I ordered this sermon series, Intimacy, Authenticity, and then Simplicity. Without intimacy with God, you will not be authentic with yourself and in the world. You just, you just won't have enough trust of who, of who God is and who God has created you to be, and your relationship with God won't be deep enough for you to trust being who God created you to be. You'll try to be what other people want you to be or what you think you ought to be for other people without intimacy. So intimacy leads us to authenticity, and then the two of those together lead us to simplicity because we're able to know who we are in God and we're able to know what God expects us to do in the world and we're able to say no to some things. And look at how Jesus does that. So he pulls away into a desolate place to be with God. Verse 42, and it says, And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Stay here, Jesus. Set up shop. Make this your kingdom. Keep preaching. Keep healing. Keep doing ministry here. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. See, Jesus had enough intimacy with God the Father that he continually knew his call, his purpose. Jesus was able to be authentically obedient to God's call on his life because he spent time with God. And then the outworking of his authenticity was simplicity. He was able to say, no, I'm not staying here in Judea and setting up shop. My call is to go to other towns and to preach the good news in other places. And so somebody else is going to come and establish a church here. After, after I send to heaven, there will be a church here. The presence of God will be among you. But I'm not going to stay and set up shop. And Jesus was able to move his life towards simplicity because he had intimacy with God. He knew God's voice. He knew he was loved by God. He was continually reminded of God's voice saying, this is my beloved. You are my beloved. I am pleased with you. And he knew God's call in his life to go and proclaim the gospel, proclaim the gospel, proclaim the gospel. In this town, there were other people set up to do other things, but he knew he wasn't going to violate what God called him to do to proclaim the gospel in other towns in order to do what the people wanted him to do. And isn't that so often where you and I get burnt out? We lack simplicity because we don't have enough intimacy with God to trust his love for us. And we don't have enough knowledge of our purpose, how God has wired us, what God wants us to do, that we end up saying yes when we ought to say no. Jesus here very clearly says no. I will not stay. Even though your intention is good. Even though you, you, you want good from me and for these people, that's not my calling. And so he moves on to the next town. And so our question related to this is similar to the last one. How will you prioritize intimacy with God? Where is the desolate place for you? How can you carve that desolate place into your schedule? How will you prioritize intimacy with God? I'm so glad that one of my mentors months ago, as I was talking through these three things that I had learned on sabbatical, he was like, you keep talking about them. Are you actually growing in them? And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not actually practicing them. I was meeting with him on a Thursday, and I, had, I was actually really stressed that day. And he's like, well, what does intimacy with God look like? I was like, for me, intimacy with God is early morning slow time with God. And that's not, again, not to be a legalist and be like, you got to have morning devos. I don't, 
care what it looks like for you. I love the quiet early morning when it's dark and nobody is awake. And so he's like, are you prioritizing that time for God? And I was like, well, sometimes. He goes, did you this morning? And I said, well, I got up early to do that, and then I checked my email and my fantasy baseball. And the fantasy baseball was a joyful experience, but checking my email, there was actually something in my inbox that created me a ton of stress, and I dealt with that all morning. He was like, well, so you're not prioritizing intimacy with God. That's probably why you're a little bit stressed today. And I was like, yep, you're absolutely right. Thank you. And this is what the church community does for one another. This is why we get in one another's lives, to ask each other loving questions. He didn't ridicule me or shame me. He just asked questions that revealed to me, oh, that's right. God, my Father, wants to be with me. I want to be with him. That's something that I say I prioritize, and so I need to. So the question is for all of us. How will you prioritize intimacy with God? And if you actually don't want intimacy with God, that's fine. Admit that to yourself and just go about your stressful, busy life. God wants to be with you in quietness and rest, in returning and rest, and in quietness and trust. You will be saved and you will find strength. Amen? And so prioritize that time. And the second question, oops, related to that is, do you know your purpose? Are you walking it out in obedient authenticity to your calling and your gifting? Remember how Jesus does that and models that for us here in this text. I will not stay in this city because there's other cities that I must go and preach in. And for any one of us to move towards simplicity, it takes knowing ourselves. That was all of last month. The, the sermon series on authenticity was about getting to know ourselves, who God has wired us to be. What is your spiritual gift? What is, what is your style? What are your habits? What is your personality? What does all that look like sanctified and given over to God so that you could align your activities with what God wants you to do? Not, what, what, not with what God wants your spouse to do or what God wants your roommate to do or God wants your ro role model to do or what God wants anyone else who you look to, God may have a different calling, a different purpose for them. Jesus was unwilling to violate what God called him to do because he had enough intimacy with God to know what it was. He, he had enough self-awareness and listening to God to be able to say, no, God wants me to go to other towns and preach the gospel. And so for us, Get to know your purpose. If you missed last week's sermon, I, I gave you some ways that you can kind of grow in understanding your spiritual gift and also the fruit of the Spirit being worked out in you. And this is part of knowing your purpose. And then it's part of walking out in obedience our authentic calling and gifting. And this will lead you to simplicity. The only way you're going to find simplicity in life is to say no a lot. And to say yes a lot but saying yes to the right things and saying no to the right things. And in that, you honor God and you actually help the body of Christ become mature and fully functioning so all the different parts are working together for the glory of God, the good of the church, and the advancement of the gospel. One last text for this morning. It's a little bit of a longer one. Matthew chapter 6. Flip over to Matthew chapter 6. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. I think there's some amazing things happening here in this portion of the Sermon of the Mount that, that point us to simplicity. Again, you're not, you're not even going to see the word simplicity in a lot of our texts. Now, the Bible does use the word simplicity and, and simplify, 
Not that often, but I think you're going to see the ethic of this in Jesus' life. And so we want to see this idea in Scripture, and we want to apply it to our lives. And so let's see it here in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 5. And as I go through this text, I'm just going to kind of go chunk by chunk and, and, and point out how I see simplicity in here, and then we'll make an application at the end. Jesus says, and when you pray, I'm in verse 5 of chapter 6, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you see the, the, the simplicity in what Jesus is calling us to in our prayer life? It's, a, it's this humility to just go before God, not from the accolades of others, not to show off our religious powerists or consistency. It's just to be with God in the simplicity, the quiet of our own private life, not a public faith, but a private faith. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't make your private faith public, right? But, but what we do, and this is what we talked about all last month, that authenticity is when the external is matching what's going on in the internal. And so Jesus here is pushing us internal. How's your heart? In simplicity, spend time with me. Humble yourself. Don't, don't show off for others. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Look at the simplicity there in verse 7 and 8. Don't think that the complexity of your words, the amount of your words, the theological depth of your words. Sometimes the church is so frustrating in how it like beats people up for praying wrong or using the wrong words or not being deep enough. When really? Some of you have been so hurt and some of you, you know you've been hurt by this. Some of you have been hurt and wounded and you don't even yet know it by pastors and spiritual leaders who have made you feel less than because you didn't use the right words. And Jesus is telling you right here to not worry about that, but to connect with him. He longs for conversation with you. Simple, childlike faith and conversation. You know what? My children have a lower vocabulary than I do. And I do not ridicule them or shame them when they come to me with their humble vocabulary. Right? And that's what God wants from us, his people. He wants us to come and, and sit on his lap and not think that he's going to hear us or respond to us because we have the right words or because we have more words. And Jesus has been teaching us this. 2,000 years ago, he brought this to us. So church family, come in simplicity to your father who wants to hold you and hear from you and meet you where you're at. Amen? Simplicity, come. And speak with your father. He goes on. So if we don't pray for show, nor if we... We, we don't pray trying to conjure up God's response by our many words or our lofty words. Here's how we come. Verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Simplicity is like a child approaching a parent. Acknowledging God is 
holy and above us, and we are humbled and coming into his presence. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Simplicity is a surrender of personal will and want. And this whole passage here, it's about trusting God daily, surrendering our will and our wants to his will, trusting that he knows what we need. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Simplicity is about daily trust in God's provision, not the pressure of you providing. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Simplicity means keeping short accounts knowing that God has forgiven you and how dare you not forgive other people who have wronged you. Keep short accounts. Life is complex and hard and heavy if you hold grudges and you don't forgive. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Simplicity is about living life God's way. Saying in my flesh, I am tempted. God, in the power of your spirit, would you lead me out of temptation? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's keep going. Verse 16 through 18, it talks about fasting. I think fasting is a part of simplicity. It's, it's killing the, the gratification and the desires of the flesh. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Again, it's, it's not about show. Simplicity is about this internal reverence and submission to God. It's about an intimacy with God that helps us to be authentic in our life. And then this plays out in our real actions. And so when you fast, do not look like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's about killing the, the cravings and the desires of the flesh. When I fast, it reminds me that oftentimes something that is enjoyable to me, food, drink, sugar, gluten, fill in your blank, it's enjoyable, and it's a good gift that can be enjoyed, but sometimes my enjoyment turns into an entitlement, and I, and I think I'm entitled to that thing because my, my flesh, my body craves it, and then entitlement leads to enslavement. Try and take my coffee away in the morning and you'll see this play out. This is what fasting does. It helps to simplify our life. To show us all the, 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 the good things of life that can often get control of our life and clutter our life. So fasting is a pathway towards simplicity. Let's keep going. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The, the accumulation of stuff, stuff is not bad. Stuff can be used for the glory of God. If God has given you a lot of stuff, you can treasure God by using that stuff and those resources for other people. However, the warning here is that stuff can also clutter and complicate our life. And it, can, it, it has a, a way of seriously hindering our simplicity in walking with God. 
He goes on to say, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and stuff. You cannot serve God and wealth. In fact, giving things away helps with simplicity. Whether that's possessions that you really like, let some other people use them. It's good for your heart. I have a friend who has a boat and he really likes his stuff and he really likes to take good care of his stuff. And, and he, he wants to hold his boat on with open hands. But he offers it to other people specifically as a spiritual act of discipline saying, God, it's not mine, it's yours. Where my treasure is there, my heart will be also. I, I treasure other people more than my boat. And he has, to, he has to preach that to himself. And so we have to do a treasure assessment. Where is your heart? Simplicity demands knowing, in, having intimacy with God, knowing your heart with God, knowing how he's called you to live, and then living it out. Not being swept up by the cares and concerns and desires of the world, or the, 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 the pride of life, the, the desire of the eyes, and the, and the cravings of the flesh, as the scriptures say. And moving on, I want to close out this passage and we'll take communion together. Verse 25 through 34, let's just read the end of this together. Not together, let's follow along. It'll be too clunky if we tried to do it together. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Let me pause there real quick. Some of you are anxious. Many of us are anxious. The anxiety bell curve rose so much the last couple of years, it's absurd. Some of you have situational anxiety. Some of you have deep anxiety that's been with you for a long time. And sometimes these, these verses and the way that they're preached, they don't, they don't do much good. Like, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. Well, thanks a lot. That's helpful, right? And I want you to hear Jesus' invitation here. He is not beating you over the brow because of your anxiety. He's inviting you into intimacy with him, authenticity in life, and simplicity so that your anxiety may be lifted. He's speaking clearly to your anxiety, trying to help you to understand that that's not how you were created to be. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. And, and I don't think he's actually commanding us there, do not be anxious. He's, he's encouraging us to not be anxious. You know the difference, right? Don't be anxious. That's ridiculous. Don't be anxious. I'm here for you. I've got you. It's a different. That's how Jesus is, is drawing us in. You don't need to be anxious. I'm here. I know you're anxious. You don't need to be. I'm here. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, or the the non-God-fearers, seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And simplicity demands us living day by day, saying, I, I can't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough worries of its own. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust God. And so here's the scripture application to this passage right here. Are you willing to daily surrender, trusting God with childlike faith and dependence? That's what simplicity demands. That's what simplicity requires is that we open up our hands and we say, not my will, but your will be done. Give me this day my daily bread. I surrender my anxiety to you. I surrender my wanting to you. I surrender my, my, my wandering to you. God, help me to trust you with childlike faith and dependence. And it's in this that we're invited to the table, where we come back again to the table to remember when you and I fall short time and time again. Remember, Jesus is our example, so we ought to try to apply the things that he taught. Give your life to that. And yet, when you fall short, don't be crushed or despondent because he came, lived the perfect life, died a sinner's death, and overcame sin and death in the grave. So every week at Park Community Church, we come to the table to remember who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. As you come forward, there's two stations here in the front. There's one in the back. If you'd like to visit that one, the the bread represents his body given for us, a life lived in our place on our behalf. And the cup represents his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, these elements are here for you to remind you of who he is and what he's done. And then as you take them even, Let it it be a a symbol and a reminder that he, Jesus, the hope of glory, is now living in you. The physical act of taking communion, eating the bread and drinking the cup, it ought to be a reminder that this new power, this new life, this new ability to pursue intimacy with God, authenticity in life, and simplicity in life like Jesus actually lives within us. You don't have to do it in your own strength, in your own power, because the living God is at work in you. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then when you feel led and ready, you can come and take communion. Dear Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you lived the perfect life, the one that we are incapable of living, that you died the sinner's death, the one that we deserve, that you overcame sin and death in the grave. And so, Lord, I pray even as we think about you living the life that we're incapable of living, I pray that that wouldn't lead us to not try. I pray that in your power, through your spirit, with new hope, with new birth, that we would pursue you with greater intimacy, that we would live our lives with greater authenticity, and that we would simplify, that we would pull away to a desolate place, that we would find time with you, that we would discover ourselves, and that we would say yes to what we ought to say yes to and no to what we ought to say no to. For your glory, the good of others, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray these things in Jesus' name.